A funny thing happened while hiking out on the Oregon coast several weeks ago at this point, getting my hike on, walking with Hank and the wife who doesn't listen to the podcast, and I come across a couple of dudes coming down as we're going up. And sure enough, when you're in this racket long enough, you start to recognize people. And I made eye contact with a guy who commented on my Red Sox hat. And I was like, no ma for life. And I said, you're Bob Welch, right? And he was like, um, yeah. How do you know? And I explained that we had been in touch a year before to be on this podcast when his book, The Wizard of Foz, uh, came out about Dick Fosbury, uh, the Fosbury flop fame, Oregonian. He had mailed me, a, uh, well, Bob had mailed me a copy of this book, signed it and everything, but we never got around to doing the pod thing. But I knew he had a new book out because Twitter and because Bob Welch is prolific AF. And uh, the book is called Saving My Enemy, How Two World War II Soldiers Fought Against Each Other and Later Forged a Friendship That Saved Their Lives. It's by Regnery History. It's the publisher. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Regnery? Regnery? I don't know. So I said, I'll send you an email. Send me that book, PDF, and we'll hook up the mics. And we did. I will write this book. There's no turning back. No, there isn't, CNFers. Let's hit it. Now in year nine, year nine, third grader. CNF Bot is a third grader, if you will. Creative Nonfiction Podcast, you know it's a show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. Bob Welch is an Oregon native, lives in Eugene, though we still recorded remotely. He's a former columnist, award-winning columnist, revered columnist for the Register Guard newspaper in its glory days, and is the author of two dozen books or so. ABL, how many have you written? One. Oh, let me guess, you at least chose a subject of mass appeal, right? Sports racing. What year is this, 1930? You're funny, inner, inner critic. You know where to find me. Support for the Creative Nonfiction Podcast is brought to you by West Virginia Wesleyan College's Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing. Now in its 10th year, this affordable program boasts a low student-to-faculty ratio and a strong sense of community. Recent CNF faculty include Randon Billings Noble, Jeremy Jones, and CNF Pod alum Sarah Einstein. There's also fiction and poetry tracks. And recent faculty include Ashley Bryant Phillips and Jacinta Townsend, as well as Diane Gilliam and Savannah Sipple. No matter your discipline, if you're looking to up your craft or learn a new one, consider West Virginia Wesleyan, right in the heart of Appalachia. Visit mfa.wvwc.edu for more information and dates of enrollment. And keep the conversation going on social media, at CNFPod and at Brendan O'Mara. And if you're feeling kind, really, consider leaving a review over at Apple Podcasts. goes a long way towards validating the enterprise for the wayward CNFer. The IG page is still in the underage court of appeals. Don't know what it's about. I've got. I'm, I'm going to appeal again. We'll see. So uh, we're doing our promotion at Brendan O'Mara on Instagram and Twitter. Twitter's at CNF Pod. It's okay over there. By all means, 
hook up the show, link up to the show, and digital fist bumps for you. Also consider becoming a member of the Patreon page as I'm putting together the the last legs of the next issue of the audio magazine. Issue one, free and free for all in the podcast feed, but issue two and beyond are exclusive to the Patreon community. Lots of cool goodies, as well as the knowledge that you're supporting writers in the CNF and community. You won't want to miss this one, CNFers. It's coming out in less than two weeks. The theme is summer. I'm in a mild panic as I get the essays and poems in the can, tracked and packaged. That MP3 file will go out only to the Patreon game. So for $2 a month of support, you get the magazine and a chance to ask questions of guests on the show. There are other tiers and other goodies as well, so give it a shot. And from now until August, I plan on giving the loudest of shout-outs to Hippocamp 2021. It's back in Lancaster, like in Lancaster, 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 Pennsylvania. Registration is open. Conference for Creative Nonfiction Writers. Marion Winnick will be this year's keynote speaker. I'll be delivering a podcast-themed talk. I can't speak highly enough for this conference. There are four scholarships and six full awards open until June 15th, including writers of color and first-time attendee scholarships. You know, there's also a uh, debut CNF author panel featuring uh, Lily Danziger, remember her, Greg Mania, Carol Smith, and Janine Ouellette, August 13th to the 15th. You dig? Use the promo code CNFPOD21 to get $50 off your registration fee. You can buy me a beer with the savings. Or some books. But maybe a beer. And listen, you've heard me say that if you want to get in shape, you hire a personal trainer. Listen, you know the fundamentals of how to eat and exercise properly. You hire a trainer to hold you accountable, to put you through the paces and see what you can't see. That's where I come in. Well, regarding your writing, of course. I can't be held accountable for your physical condition, but your writing condition, on the other hand. That's where I come in. So if you're ready to level up, I'd be honored and thrilled to help you get yourself and your writing and your book essay or book proposal where it needs to go. Email me and we'll start a dialogue. Talk pricing. Aight. Lastly, this show is brought to you by the word mesmeric. Adjective. Produced by mesmerism. Hypnotic. Compelling. Fascinating. Mesmeric. Okay, here's my conversation with Bob Welch. Great stuff on writing. And uh, did John uh, John Krakauer really steal Bob's girlfriend? Stay with us. Who? up on the PCT uh, in about two weeks' time, right? Exactly, yeah. A week from Monday, leave for 460 miles, a little bit longer than the state of Oregon, um, going from uh, the San Gabriel Mountains, uh, northeast of L.A., uh, up to the 14,500-foot level of Mount Whitney, tallest point, highest point in the lower 48, so... That will uh, get us within about 200 miles of finishing the whole PCT. Wow. And is this like, have you done the entire thing before or just sections? No, we've, we've, we've been working on it. This is our 10th summer. Uh, my, my book uh, 
early on, I decided to name the book Seven Summers because I, you know, I like the alliteration, of course. Yeah. And uh, but then life gets in the way and death, death actually gets in the way. We had a brother-in-law die mm. on the day we left um, back home uh, one year. COVID has cost us one year. Uh, fires cost us one year. And um, trail closures cost us another year. So we're on our 10th summer and hope, hoping to get it done. 600 miles, a little more than 600 miles to go. Wow. And so what kind of training do you do to get in shape for such a thing? Well, kind of a combination of swimming and uh, butte, butte uh, uh, hiking. Uh, you, you saw me on near the top of Cape Perpetua a couple mm-hmm. of months ago um, when I ride over in Yahats. We have a cabin over there, so I spend a lot of time in Yahats riding. And, and then in the afternoons, I zip up and do uh, Perpetua time or two. And uh, um, and then I do Spencer Butte and uh, Mount Pisgah and I swim at Amazon pool uh, as much as I can. So, uh, a little bit of, uh, I mean, you can never really get in shape when you're hiking 18 to 20 miles a day, swimming in an hour at Amazon, isn't going to really cut it, <laughs> but, right. but it does sort of take the, it does sort of take the, the pain away that first week the first week can be pretty brutal um, but you, these young kids that uh, comprise most of the uh, folks on the PCT I, I always get the feel that they like uh, go to a party and uh, say hey let's take the PCT sounds cool let's leave in the morning <laughs> yeah. and they do it and my brother-in-law who is an equally old fart like me uh we we really do try to train it's our only advantage discipline is our only advantage over the young people discipline and and uh, a willingness to get up at 4 or 4:30 a.m. while they're all sleeping in that, that really sounds like the writer's discipline too doesn't it <laughs> well you know i i am a big i'm a proponent i i think that writing is both uh uh, uh art and science and 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 sort of um feel and discipline, I guess. And so, yeah, I've in the past, you know, when I worked as a columnist at the Register Guard back in the early 2000s, I mean, I stumbled across a story about the first nurse to die after the landings at Normandy in World War II. And I was so passionate about telling the story, but but I had a 50 hour a week job. And so uh, I just taught myself to get up at 4.30 in the morning and be a, an author until 8 a.m. And then I'd rush off and uh, be a columnist during the day and come home and, and spend a little time with my wife. And then in the evening, become an author again. And, and you just sort of figure out what you have to do to get it done. And you, you divide up how much time you have, how many words you can write per day. And, and so I, I think I do tend to the discipline side and, and the um, setting goal side and the organized side, but I also love the oh I don't know I just love the the freedom to just go where the muse takes me and so I, you know I think I have both sides of the brain there you know the discipline and the art side and the the uh, plan well ahead side and the spontaneous side. I've been talking to a lot of people about this idea of depth of commitment and it's it stemmed from a blog post that I read from Stephen Pressfield, the author of War of Art and several novels and a few other, you know, sort of self-helpy mm. inspirational books for writers yeah, and heard, creatives. I've heard of him. 
Yeah, yeah, it's re- you know really smart, really inspiring, and kind of a a testament to the depth of commitment, but also playing the long game because he's definitely a late bloomer in terms of being uh, a writer and a prominent writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it sounds like it sounds like you like the fact that you would get up that early and do that kind of work before the day job, and then do it afterwards. It's like you have a tremendous depth of commitment to the craft of writing. So uh, you know, how have you forged that over the years, and you know why? What is it about writing that it has lent itself to such a depth of commitment for you? I think the equation, Brendan, is passion plus desperation, (laughs) (laughs) near as I can say. I mean, when I I was in fifth grade and it was career day in Corvallis, you could – Go hang out with the guy at the grocery store if you wanted to work at the grocery store or go hang out at the school if you wanted to be a teacher. And I I went and interviewed the Oregon State basketball coach. <laughs> I wanted to be a reporter. I wanted to be a writer. So it's the only thing I've known how to do. And I'm just passionate. I'm, I have this insatiable curiosity. And when I get my I get my mind around a story, I just want to find out I want to become an expert on the story. I, I had an old journalism professor who used to say that I was I was more detective than writer. Sometimes I will so over research a story. Uh I'm working on a book now that I wrote 143,000 words for what's going to be probably a 90,000 word book and it's just because I felt obligated to uh, use information from over a hundred books that I'd been through and nearly 50 interviews I'd done. So I think that that, that's the passion part of it. And the desperation part of it is, and I, I believe in desperation. I, I have this sort of, uh, uh, theory that when we're backs, when our backs are against the wall, when, when there's no possible way we can do something, that's when we can do something that's mm-hmm. you know eleanor roosevelt said you you must do the thing you cannot do it's a, it's something that dick fosbury when i wrote about in the the wizard of foz you know the guy that invented the backwards over the high jump bar high jump style he was desperate to belong he's a kid in medford oregon in the early 60s he's one of the worst high jumpers in the state of Oregon and the only, you know, he's lost his brother has died tragically in a bike accident uh, where, where Dick was with him. His parents have divorced. He's kind of an orphan and he's looking desperately for a place to belong. And the only place that really feels good to him is the track team, but he can only stay on the track team if he keeps jumping higher and higher mm-hmm. and he's not jumping very high. He's, he's barely clearing heights that a lot of junior high jumpers are jumping. And so I contend in the wizard of Foz that he, out of desperation, he willed himself to think up this new style and, and, and use it because it, again, it, it was the one thing that could keep him where he needed to be. And that is part of that team, part of the tribe, part of this sense of belonging. And you, in, in an email to me, you said that the, of all the, you know, you've written uh, two dozen books or whatever it is. And Wizard of Foz was uh, the most fun you ever had writing. Uh, and that was one of your more recent books. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what was it about uh, writing and reporting and researching that book in particular that really uh, stands out in your in the catalog of all the books you've written. It's a great question. I think 
I think it was a combination of time and time, place and circumstance. You know, t- the time, the 60s, it's just a to me, you know, you're a young person, so you don't remember the 60s. But for me, that's that was kind of my coming of age time. You know, I was I graduated from high school in 72. So when so so t- the time what went on there, it, this wasn't a story just about Dick Fosbury. It was it was a story that almost was a product of the times. In other words, I, I are sort of argued that this could only have happened in the 1960s, a guy who literally turned his back on the establishment. <laughs> you know, I mean, this could only happen in the 60s. It, it, it was um, Vietnam. He was, he was uh, close to being drafted because he had dropped out. He, his grades weren't high enough at Oregon State, and he was losing his deferment. It was black rights. It was Tommy Smith and John Carlos holding their fists, black gloved fists up at Mexico City to protest uh, racism, racial discrimination. And all of these things culminated in in Fosbury's five-year climb to fame. Uh, Even after he won the gold medal in 68, he wound up on the Oregon State campus being one of the few white athletes who stood to defend a, a black football player who had been kicked off the Oregon State team for having the very slightest of mustaches. And the hmm. Black Student Union walked off campus, and I, I don't know, 100 some athletes signed a petition backing the football coach. And Fosbury dared to sign up, stand up for Fred Milton, the football player, and said, This is wrong. And so time and and then and then the other thing was place. Uh, I grew up in Corvallis. I was 13 when when I first saw Dick Fosbury jump two and a half mile a two and a half mile bike ride from my house. We used to go over to Bell Field at Oregon State and jump on the same foam pit that he had jumped on the previous day on Sunday afternoons. We would climb the fence and 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 high jump. Sometimes bringing our own bamboo bars. So, so this was a play. I I understood Corvallis, and when and when he was talking about uh, being in a Pack Eight meet in Eugene, I could see Hayward Field, uh, and and the other special place was Echo Summit, California, uh, seventy five hundred feet up in the El Dorado National Forest in the High Sierra, where Bill Bowerman, uh, the, fo- the former U of O track and field coach, dec- and and head of the Olympic. Uh, uh, team at that time, he decided to put the Olympic trial track up in the woods to, to replicate the elevation of Mexico City. And so place was a, such a, a big part of all this that I had a connection to Fosbury right there in Corvallis that I knew Eugene. And, and I was just fascinated by Echo Summit in 1980 when my wife and I were coming back from a vacation in California. Instead of coming up I-5, I insisted we come up the east side of the Sierra Nevada, because I had to go to Tahoe. I had to see where the Olympic trials had been because as a kid, I'd had these Sports Illustrated photos in my bedroom. My bedroom was literally wallpapered with color, colored Sports Illustrated photos, one of which was a double truck of G- Jim Ryan running through the forest at hmm. Echo Summit. And I was just infatuated with this place. So the idea that 50 years later, I got to stand at that spot with Dick Fosbury in that forest to see where he had actually jumped 
it it was amazing. So time, place, and then circumstance. The fact that that here's a kid who just invented a a, a better mousetrap. He he turned the world on its ear. He basically for all of those teachers who were saying, you know, you've got to do it this way, Dick Fosbury was basically politely spitting in their face and saying, no, you don't. You can you can color outside of the box. You can be Harold in the purple crayon. You can you can create your own reality. And the guy went on not only to win a gold medal, but to revolutionize the high jump event. So time, place, and circumstance, what he actually did, uh, it all kind of – it comes together in, 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 in that's what made this story so fun. Oh, that's amazing. And, and as someone, like you said, you had uh, sports illustrated images uh, on your wall. Uh, you know, Dick Fosbury is practically in your backyard, you know, growing up and you see, you, you see this thing, you get to write about him, but also in the late eighties, you know, you, I think you wrote a piece for sports illustrated about Fosbury. So that must've been pretty special to be able to write a piece for this, such an iconic magazine at the time. And, uh, you know, given your relationship to that magazine, right? You know, you you hit it on the ha- head, my friend. I was, uh, my dream in life was to be published in Sports Illustrated. You know, I didn't care what I did. I knew I, I, I'd had no desire to, to move back to New York and work for Sports Illustrated, nor did, was I probably good enough to do that. But I did have a dream of of being published in Sports Illustrated. I had I got a letter to the editor uh, in the early '80s, but somehow I got the idea on the 20 year anniversary of of uh, Mexico City would be 1988. That'd be a great. They used to have a, a thing called looking a, a, a section in the back of the magazine that was called Looking Back or or Yesterday. I can't remember which it was, but anyway, it was a historic look. And I said, this is perfect. You got a historic look, you got 20 year anniversary and you've just got a, there's just a fascination with Fosbury because he was, he was simply unique. So I, I sent the, the query letter and I got a very positive response and, and they wanted me to do the story. And I was just stoked. I remember it was going to pay, I'd, I'd been paid like $35 to, to write a, a, a story for skim about skimboarding in Oregon Coast Magazine, $35, right? Sports Illustrated was paying me $1,250 for this story. Plus, I remember a $250 kill fee. Even if they didn't use it, they were going to pay me $250. But of course, the money was secondary. I just wanted to see my byline in Sports Illustrated. So I worked on this for months. I was working at the Journal American newspaper up in Bellevue, Washington at the time. Worked on it for months. Had two or three editors go over it reworked it reworked it sent it in and two weeks later eh, sorry a, a form letter or you know doesn't meet our needs and i'm like you've got to be kidding me <laughs> i i was <laughs> i was literally crushed i mean i can remember my then perhaps uh seven or eight year old older son like patting me on the back because I, I was literally weeping <laughs> because i this was so important to me. I mean, this was, and so I, I got on the phone the next day and I, and I wound up talking to somebody who basically the first person said, Hey, you know, you, you just, you know, if, if that's what the editor said, that's what she said. And that's, that's that. But I wound up talking to her and basically she said, you could try rewriting it, but I wouldn't get your hopes up. So I rewrote it. And what I did was, this is strange, I kind of dumbed it down. I, I think I tried so hard to write like a Sports Illustrated writer. I think I tried to be cute and fancy and use these amazing metaphors and similes. And what basically, I just, 
I, I kind of neutered the, the article and turned it into what sounded to me almost like an Associated Press wire story, and they accepted it, and they mm. ran it. That's uh, that's incredible. Uh, yeah, because I've been guilty of sometimes trying to be over-stylized with, with, uh, with writing, much to the detriment of the story, and it wasn't until a very good editor that I work with on longer pieces, just he's like, Brendan, don't get all writerly on me. Yeah. And he's just like, just tell the story, let the story do the heavy lifting. And every time I think of it in terms of like, like that, like I can get the style out in the first draft, but I got to comb through it and just be like, surrender to the story. And th- that's ultimately what elevates it. And I, I imagine I, that's what happened to, to this piece on. Yeah. I, and I love that phrase in the alliteration, surrender to the story. That's, that's well put. I've told, I've, I teach writers workshops and I've often will, I'll often tell people trust the story. Don't, yeah. don't try too hard. Just let this, let the story lead. And um, I had an editor at the Register Guard, Kevin Miller, and uh, he was the best I've ever worked with who could just um, find and keep you on track in terms of the essence of a story. And he would um, he would sometimes refer to bric-a-brac, you know, that, that you would he, – he'd say something like, gosh, Welch, I love this line uh, that you wrote here, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and I said, oh, thanks. He goes, now, take it out. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, it has nothing to do with your story. It's a beautiful line. It just doesn't belong. And I think that um, Kevin and a, and a, a Pulitzer Prize winning um, writer named John Franklin, who was a former uh, journalism school professor at the U of O, kind of revolutionized my writing in the early 90s. And, and a host of us from the, the Register Guard who who met with him a few times, who read his book, Writing for Story. And he he was uh, he made me understand what a story was really all about, that it that it had this uh, conflict and it had this uh, resolution, you know, developmental points. And then it had a resolution. And I mean, even whether I was writing a 800 word column or a 75000 word book, I have used his template for telling a story, you know, for the last almost 30 years. And it, it, you know, I, it taught me, for example, in column writing that you didn't, that it wasn't, it wasn't bad. In fact, it was good to um, add some suspense to your column. Don't give it away all at the, at the front. You know, when you, when you're raised in the newspaper business, you know, who, what, when, where, how, uh, you're you're sort of taught the, the the inverted pyramid. You know, the most important thing comes first, and the least important stuff comes last. You kind of uh, you you forget that you don't have to give it all away uh, at once. And so that I think that's really important. And I think it's hard for young writers to trust themselves, trust their stories, um, to allow that suspense to to do some foreshadowing and not feel like they have to tie up all the the knots all at once at the start oh that's that's amazing that uh franklin uh, taught at the uh, at uo i had no idea like i i, I have uh, writing for story on my shelf i've read it a few times and he's the first pulitzer winner to win it yeah. for feature writing and i had no idea that yeah. uh you know that he was uh well at least uh in this area for a time he was he was here in the '90s, and um, I don't know. I would I would estimate perhaps a, a decade, and 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 I he was so accessible. I mean, like he would just come over to the Register Guard, and we'd sit down in a conference room, and and I think we did this maybe two or three times, 
but I mean, it was it was like God coming down from on high <laughs> to meet with a bunch <laughs> of hacks, and 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 I didn't even realize it until looking back how how what an amazingly cool piece he put in my my writing puzzle. But uh, I my my copy of writing for story is just so well worn and so underlined. I I tell people read read the first half twice. Don't bother reading the second half. I didn't. I didn't think that the second half was that that important, but I thought where he actually takes two stories and he breaks them down and he kind of explains, here's why I did what I did throughout the whole thing. You don't see too many books like that. And it's really showing rather than telling. And it was it's just left an impression on me that instrumental in my writing even today. Yeah, I I love hearing you say that and also also kind of in a cast an amber kind of way it makes me it makes me so sad because back back in the day when there was that kind of that kind of writing was just openly cultivated in newspapers whether it was the tampa bay times and or the saint pete times doing a lot of the serial narratives they did there you would see yeah. this all over the country and even with the guard here in town and then it's just you know it just everything's just been so decimated where you can't have that kind oh. of uh, uh latitude to tell a story yeah. and to maybe tell it in multiple parts and use those scenes and dialogue. It just, it how, sadly how doesn't old, exist. How old are you, sir? I turned 41 in a couple of weeks. Okay. So yeah, you're a punk. I'm 67. So, <laughs> but, but you're right. And, and you caught, you know, you caught the tail end of that, of that wave of newspaper wave, but there's just, there was such, such great journalism going on in the eighties and the nineties. And, and people today and kids growing up today have no idea. Well, you know, most kids today don't even know what a newspaper is. There was just such great reporting and great writing and, and so much space. I mean, you would have multi-part uh, series that would go on and on. And uh, it was almost the stuff of magazines that was going on in the newspaper. I mean, we did a piece, I think, uh, I want to say maybe 2014, 15 I think we had 16 pages over four days. We just invited um, World War II veterans to come to the Register Guard over a two-day period, and just and we just said, "Tell tell us your story." I believe it was for the maybe the 70-year anniversary of Pearl Harbor, but we just kind of used that as a, a foot in the door to get into the story. And instead of we had so many people show up that we extended it to five days, and it was. It was incredible. We we would, you know, somebody would be photographing these guys. It was my job to, you know, somebody else was up front was just kind of downloading their basic story. And then when they found, I was going to try to write, I believe, 16 little um, snippets on, on 16 different people. So I might be interviewing one guy, but boy, we had, we had such latitude, such support from our, from our uh, bosses. And, and we had the space in a way that, uh, you know, and we had the staff. I mean, my goodness. I mean, it's, I just, I feel for the people of the register guard. Now you're, you know, you got a dozen people doing what, you know, 60, 70 people used to do back in the day. Yeah. And you just can't do any, you can't really reach a level of, uh, of depth and spend a lot of time researching and fleshing something out. It's got to be turned around so quick that there's just the there's no way to really sink into a, a story anymore. Even if there is some enterprise being done, it's yeah. often 
it's often very, very just superficial instead of getting into the bones of something. Right. And plus, you know, the staffs are so young, they don't, they simply don't have, it's not their own fault. They simply don't have the institutional history. They don't really know in many cases, you know, somebody could die in the community and unless, unless they get a phone call from somebody out there in the public who, who knew this person and who knew how important they were, I'm sure there's all sorts of important people who have died in the last few years and, and probably didn't get a mention in their register guard. And it's, so it is a, it's a sad time. And I think, you know, the large papers are still being kicking out some pretty great journalism. And I think that the, I think that the weeklies, the smaller papers are still doing okay because people still read that in a small uh, town and they still buy advertisement. I think it's the middle-sized paper like the register guard that are, that are perhaps hurting the most. And as you were uh, sort of coming up and developing as a young reporter and journalist, like who were some of the the writers that you deeply admired and you deeply wanted to model your own work after? Yeah, I tend to gravitate. I, I, I for some reason I think of the humorous that come to mind for some reason as a columnist. I think of the Dave Barrys. I I think Garrison Keeler is a guy who taught me just through his storytelling. I I just he's just a master at telling a story and he's one of the few people who's as good in print. I always felt as he was in spoken word. Uh, those two came to mind, um, for, for nonfiction writing, um, a, a 1972 classmate of mine at Corvallis high, John Krakauer. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. His book, uh, into the wild. Uh, I mean, everybody knows him for into thin air about his, the, the, uh, trip up Everest where I believe eight or nine people died, but in, into the wild in some ways is the higher leap because he had to do such reporting on that. Why does a blue blood kid from Maryland wind up dying in a school bus in the wilds of Alaska? And what I didn't want to believe was what a great reporter John Krakauer is and, and I didn't want to believe it because in 1972 he stole my girlfriend at Corvallis High School <laughs> and I've always kind of and plus when we ran in, in middle school we ran track he always beat me in the 1320 uh, the, the the three lap race and so I've always kind of held it against him but but I have to admit and I and the other th- the third thing is that I went the traditional route. I grew up in Corvallis, but I went to journalism school at the University of Oregon. I worked on the junior high paper, the high school paper, the sports editor of the college newspaper. And Krakauer went off to Massachusetts and and went to a a private school where he got to plan his own curriculum and stuff like <laughs> yeah. this. And yet and yet and I guess it goes to show and I'm not don't get me wrong I'm not comparing myself to Krakauer. I'm not I'm 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 near nowhere near that guy. But I mean, we both became I think pretty decent writers, but we just took really different trails to get to get up the mountain. And and he what what makes into the wild so so wonderful and gripping is the deep research he did find finding out the following this kid's trail around the United States be, and, and then winding up in this school bus in Alaska. So those are those are some people that come to come to mind for me. That you make such a great point about the the different paths to get 
to a similar place. And I talk about that a lot because we can get into a toxic comparison and jealousy and comp- uh, competition among among peers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what really boils down to is like you, you just have to really have the the assuredness to kind of run your own race because it, because uh, there are so many paths. But if you only look at the outcome and you're comparing yourself and how you crappy you feel on on a daily basis to 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 crack hours, uh, you know, apex mountain of yeah. uh, you 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 lose sight of his path was very different and his yeah. the way he got into into the wild and the way it, he made it sing was. He almost he was he could really relate to McCandless and oh, yeah. and the fact that he almost died on a you know a recklessly climbing up a devil's tooth or something exactly that and that so was it, the uh, that that's always been kind of a controversial part of the of of the book in that it was such a divergent um, such a digression from the rest of the story we talk about it a lot in our writers workshops you know and and yet um, I I always argue that it worked that even though it was strange to be telling this third person story about McCandless. And then suddenly, Hey, let me tell you for an entire chapter about the difficulties I had with my own father and how once I, I went up to climb the, what is it? The devil's thumb. Is that it? Uh, I think so. Devil's thumb or devil's tooth or something. Anyway, in Alaska. Hey, it's a classic Brendan punch in right here. Bob is right. I am wrong. It is Devil's Thumb, not Devil's Tooth, that Krakauer climbed and uh, wrote into two chapters and into the wild. So just clearing that up. Okay, back to the conversation. But it, but it absolutely worked. And, um, you know, I think of this phrase, going back to what you said earlier about how we, you know, we all take these different paths. Um when I first decided, or I was thinking about hiking the Oregon portion of the PCT, my brother-in-law and I went up um, near the Middle Sister in 2010, and we ran into a on the on the and we were on the PCT, and we ran into a kid who you know had left from Mexico, and and I I always uh, when I one of the things that I I think that I'm good at is I just love to ask people questions because I'm just a reporter, and so. And so I just said, well, what's the best advice you could give us? We're thinking about doing the hike in Oregon next year. And he said these words. He said, hike your own hike. Hike your own hike. And I've just never forgotten that. And I think it's applicable not only to the hiking experience. You know, what what my brother-in-law and I do is different than what these 25-year-olds are doing. A lot of them are doing it in one summer. We're doing it in a decade, maybe, <laughs> if we can, <laughs> right. if, if we're still, if we make Canada this, this September. But again, it's not important how you get there. And it's not even that important that you get there. It's important, what does the experience mean to you along the way? And I think it's the same way with writing, is that we all, I, that's what I love about writer's workshops. We used to have like 50, 55 people over in Yahats. And I was always just fascinated how one person could just be so on fire about an idea that like would make my eyes glaze over. And, and yet, you know, she would just like, I'm dedicated to this. This is a story I've wanted to tell my whole life and I'm going to tell it. And I always love to see that passion, even though the, our ideas were different, our methods were different, our styles were different. To me, that's that's the fun of it all is that um, that we we all approach it so differently. And yet in, in the end, 
there's just this amazing – you, you just make something out of nothing. You come up with this idea, and then a year or two, maybe even more years later, you're holding this book in your hand. And it's it's kind of – I've always just thought that book writing is almost a miracle. You know, you talked about the, you know, your penchant for curiosity, which is just really the sort of the the cornerstone of what it means to tell true stories and to be a nonfiction writer. Um, where in the process, whether it be research, writing, reporting, uh, do you feel most alive and most engaged? Wow, good question. I'm, I'm enjoying this immensely. I've, I've, I can't remember when people have asked me such um, scintillating questions about writing. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, every, every step of the way, I love the, I love, you know, jotting a note on a Wendy's napkin at, at in Chehalis, Washington, uh, in, in 2001, uh, write book on World War II nurse. And, and, and from the minute you come up with that idea, um, that the curiosity just kicks in and then you just basically what you, what you do for the next year or two or four or whatever is just ask yourselves questions about this person or this place or this event, and then, then try to find the answers. And and what I learned in researching that book was that every time you came up with an answer, then that, that led to five more questions. Okay. So we learned that Francis Langer in Boston, we've got some, uh, uh, some, uh, pay forms that show she worked at a woolen mill in, in Boston. So how would she get to work? And, and what were her hours and, and what, it, what, what, uh, what did that matter? Well, I mean, what did, what piece did that put in her life puzzle or did it put, put any piece at all? So you just, it's almost the, the best thing. And the worst thing is, you know, you get the question answered, but then it just means you have to answer more questions. But the, the entire process, um, to me, um, I love the, I love the research part of it. I, I, I can think of this, uh, one of my beachside writers and she said, Bob, I love to write, but I hate, I hate research. And man, I don't know. I, I just don't know if you can really, well, I know, I know there are exceptions. I, I, I know that you could be a great writer. I mean, novelists, novelists have to do research, um, but they don't have to do quite as much research as, as the nonfiction writer has to, but you know, I, there are people who don't do much research and, and, you know, Garrison Keillor can just sit down and imagine stories and, and write. But I do think that the, the investigation, um, tracking down the story, putting the puzzle together. And then when you, when you, when you start connecting the dots and you see what's happening, like Fosbury, I kind of always knew the, the, the basic outline. I mean, I'd written about him for sports illustrated, you know, 32 years ago or whatever, but I didn't, man, I didn't know the, then I'd heard a story about how his brother uh, was hit by a drunk driver and a hit and run and Dick was with him. And, I mean, that, that had only shown up one time in one story of all the things I could find online about Fosbury, only one small mention of that. But then I had to ask myself, so what did that mean to Dick Fosbury? And then you have to sort of put yourself, I think, I think, I think good writers have to have empathy. I think you have to be able to put yourself in the place of the people that you're writing about and, and ask yourself, what what would that have felt like? I'm, I'm 16 years old. I, I was, I beat up my brother in the on the front lawn and to and then to make it up to him I decided to take him for a bike ride and on, on and on that bike ride he gets killed 
So imagine yeah. the guilt that, that Dick Fosbury had, you know, this doesn't happen if he doesn't beat up his brother or if he doesn't take him on the bike ride. It's my fault. And then his parents divorce, which what does that say to a 16 year old kid? It's all your fault, you know. And so he's got all this guilt and this shame and this, again, this this loneliness, this sense that he needs to. He, he did belong to a, a mom and dad and a brother, but now he doesn't. How can he belong? And so you, you put yourself in that person's point or you're you're francis langer and you're a world war ii nurse you're at ellis island in 1920 and and you're detained because you have an eye infection how are you feeling what what is that like where they're not allowing you you've left one country and they're not allowing you in from she came from poland and you're not being allowed into the next country you're you're placed in a cage um you must not feel a whole lot of worth and and so i think that 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 part of the process has always been interesting to me as well as trying to figure out, you know, why did my, why was my character or my person I'm writing about the way, what, what inspired her to be the, the giving person she was when so many people sort of took from her uh, or in Fosbury's case, you know, how did he become, how did he gain so much confidence to win a gold medal when, you know, he had no confidence at all when he was 16. And then I like, I don't know, the, the process of actually writing is um, is the best and worst of it all, I guess. Just the, right. uh, there's just, there's so many parts where it's just, you, you get up in the morning and you just can hardly wait to see what, where your little fingers are going to take you on the keyboard. And, and then there are times when it's just a slog and it's like doing a workout. I used to do cross country running where you just don't want to run and, uh, but but uh, in the end, uh, it all comes together, and and hopefully you've you've told a, a story that enriches the world somehow. Yeah, I remember uh, right before uh, Michael Phelps was going to retire from swimming, he knew the moment he was done was when it was six a.m. and he could no longer jump in that cold pool. And I, I liken often the, the middle and the grind of writing to sort of jumping into that cold pool where it's just like, I know I need to do this, but I really don't want to. But yeah. then, of course, you start to warm up and the, the, the flow will come once you have the courage to sort of sit with the bad stuff long enough and yep. you'll get there. Um, so, you know, you're alluding to it, of course, but how do you push through those messy middles, the times when you don't feel like strapping on those running shoes and getting out the door. I think that, I think the key is going back to Krakow or, you know, the key is just um, dedicating yourself in the beginning, setting a goal and saying, I will write this book. There, there's no turning back. It's the couple that gets married and simply says, <laughs> we're never going to get divorced. We're going to fight through whatever it is, but we're, we're going to fight for our relationship. And, and I think that like Krakauer talks about, uh, you never decide when you're, um, when you're on, when you're on or near the top of, of Everest, what time you're going to turn around and head back. You decide the day before when you're unemotional. To decide, to decide while you're on the, the climb is to let your emotions cloud your decisions. Oh, we're only 200 feet from the top. We can make it. But wait, there's a wall of clouds over there, and, and it, it could be a storm coming in. So, so I think for writers, I think when you, when you 
you get out your notebook and you say, by this date, I'm going to have this story done. When you dedicate yourself to that, when you're not in, in an emotional mood, you're, you're just in that disciplined mood. I think that that's the key because then when it comes to jumping into that cold pool and you don't want to jump, you remember, but hey, I've got a pact with myself. I've, I've got a goal here. I'm going to get this done. And so you don't let your emotions, you know, I don't want to get all cold. Um, you don't let your emotions get in the way. I'm, I'm, I'm going to step on a trail a week from Monday, the San Gabriel Mountains you see from the Rose Bowl so beautifully, and then, and then head along the Mojave Desert after we get through the San Gabriel. I'm going to be on the trail for 30 days, and, and I'm going to be going, skirting a desert. It's going to be 100 to 110 degrees. I'm going to be hiking 18 miles a day, having to carry probably close to 40 pounds because of all the water. And I'm going to be with my brother-in-law, who is the most amazing human being in the world, but not the greatest conversationalist. (laughs) (laughs) So so I have to, right? What I'm doing in the next uh, 10 days is I'm just stealing my mind and saying, you've can't quit you you're you've got to be you know on on july 14th you've got to be on top of mount whitney and that's just a given so so when times get and times get tough and and i'm going to be hot i'm going to be tired but but you you just think back wait a minute the plan is to do it and i'm gonna do it so I think I guess I'd come back. I'm I'm staring at a book that i wrote called resolve or even as Mm -hmm. i speak here and i think that that's the key word resolve you just need to resolve that you're going to push through the pain and go through whatever it takes to get this done. I love that notion of uh, of almost working backwards. Like you want to be uh, by July fifteenth, you want to be on the summit of Mount Whitney, or you know, or you know, wherever the terminus is for you uh, near Mount Whitney. And it's like, all right, but in order to get there, you know, we have thirty days to do it. We got to do X amount of days. It's like. If you're writing a 75,000 word book and that just seems so daunting, you just kind of break it down. If I do, you know, let's just say, you know, a thousand words a day, you know, you're going to be there in 750 days or whatever it is or uh, or 75, 750. So like if you just kind of break it down into those manageable chunks, suddenly it seems doable and then the momentum can build and then you have confidence and then you're just the flywheel starts to spin. Yep. I like I like that phrase, you know, uh, uh, manageable chunks. I like that manageable chunks, and I think that that's what it's all about. Like, like I get up every morning, and and my brother in law and I, we always have a, a goal. Our our um, our first goal is is uh, to to have a measurable pulse <laughs> at the end of the day. In other <laughs> words, we don't want to die because there are some points on the PCT where you can get into some pretty scary stuff, whether it be a river crossing or you're on an exposed trail that's, you know, one wrong step and you're, you know, a thousand feet down. So we've always told ourselves our first goal is to have a measurable pulse. Our second goal is to get to where we plan to get on this day. And, and hopefully it'll be uh, on water so we can, we can, uh, we can get water, but yeah, that's the thing. And then, and then from that point, it's just like, I break the day into okay. I just by by uh, you know there's a ten, there's a saying on the PCT ten by ten. You know I, I asked these kids from Colorado the very first time I got on the or the I was on the California Oregon border heading north, starting out the 
doing Oregon. And there were these Colorado kids. And I said, what's your advice for me? And this one kid said 10 by 10. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, we tried to do 10 miles by 10 a.m. And I looked at my brother-in-law and I said, how about we just be the two by fours? Because, I mean, the the idea that you could do 10 miles by 10 a.m. was just so far beyond what anything we ever dreamed of. But you know what? By the by the end of the summer, we were up near Mount Hood and we're making good time. And I said to my brother-in-law, I said, what time is it? And he goes, well, it's just a little bit before, before 10. And I said, and how many miles have we gone? I don't have done 10 miles. I mean, we did it. So, but, the, but, but you get to that 10 miles by simply one, literally one step at a time. I think it's, it's, it's 6 million steps to get from Canada or Mexico to Canada. But you, you get there one step at a time. Wow. Uh, that's uh, that's incredible. Hey, it's just really, it's so symbolic and metaphoric for, for the writing process as well. Um, in, in speaking, you know, in, in speaking of that and coming to, to, to your latest, your latest book, it's, uh, you know, World War II kind of, you've been in this pool for a while going back to the, to the, to the nurse and World War II is always something you, you come back to. Uh, and, and with this one, you know, for, it started with a, what was it? Easy company, easy company that, soldier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, and then that, what, that sort of, uh, I don't know, it led to, it led to this book. So in what, you know, in what ways, let me, let me rephrase that. How are you able to make it uh, kind of fresh and new and feel like you weren't, um, I don't know, repeating yourself, yeah. but when you yeah. came to this story, I, you know, I've been asked by people if, uh, do you have a do you just love writing about war and i and i always say no in fact i i hate war and the more i've written about it the more i hate war um i like writing about uh, uh in- interesting people to be honest it's just that the the stage on which a lot of my stories seem to take place happens to be war what made this one fresh and new uh and I've, I've turned down lots of projects for that very reason, because I think so many war stories have just been told. It's hard to have a, anything new. But this this one truly is a, the rare war story with a happy ending. I mean, it's it's two soldiers, Don Malarkey, one of the famed band of brothers of the, the Hank Spielberg uh, HBO series back in 2001. It's, it's Don Malarkey, and it's a guy named Fritz Engelbert who fought within five miles of each other during the Battle of the Bulge. 60 years later, wind up in that in in Bastogne, Belgium, the same place at this at this remembrance on the 60 year anniversary of the bulge. And basically over a couple of beers, get to know each other and forgive each other. And and it's you don't think of world grizzled World War Two vets getting into any touchy feely sort of thing. And it, it wasn't according to Matthias, the son of Fritz, who did the interpreting. It wasn't tons of that, but it was enough where where at one point Don said to Fritz, who was felt this tremendous guilt for having been a pawn of Adolf Hitler. He said, you know, Fritz, you were in Hitler youth at age 10. You didn't have any choice. It's not your fault. You're a good man. You raised you raised two great sons. Just forgive yourself. And and no one in 60 years had ever said anything like that, much less a guy that he would have tried to kill. Back in 1944, and 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 Fritz later in the conversation when Don breaks down because Don's an alcoholic and he's been he's been living the war every day. He said, you know, I I would take a, a drink of my scotch and in the in the bottom of the glass I'd see the face of every man I left in Bastonia. 
I still remember every single day the the look on the 16-year-old German kid's face after I killed him. I mean, that never went away for him. And so Fritz turns to him and says, Don, the same thing for you. You didn't have any choice. Your country said, go to war. They put a rifle in your hand and you and you went. And so this started this amazing friendship. They met two other times. Their entire the entire Malarkey family came to Europe and met with the Engelberts. And now and then uh, Don's daughter invites Fritz's two sons to come to an Easy Company reunion in Portland, Oregon, and they're they're welcomed with open arms. And so Marion is now like the little sister that that uh, Matthias and Volker, the sons of Fritz. Uh, never had and 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 so this this story just had all this freshness to it that that was exciting to write frankly writing about the war part was the least interesting part because I've, I've been there i've done that but writing about the difference between don malarkey growing up on the nehalem river like huckleberry finn and fritz engelbert growing up in hitler youth at the same time that was fun and and well maybe fun's not the right word but i mean and and their post traumatic stress that they went through was intriguing because I think I think very few uh, World War II books really help us understand what these men went through because we talk about PTS all the time now, but yeah. nobody knew about it in 1945 when these guys out, they, they were supposed to just, I mean, my son's a documentary maker and he did a, a, a documentary on war and, and, and PTSD and the, the the government just tried to tell these guys, hey, just don't tell anybody about it. It'll go away, and you'll be you'll be better than new before you know it. Well, that's that was a lie, and these guys su- suffered and are still suffering in some cases horribly because of it. So that was an interesting part of the story, and contrasting the two men. But then the and then the end where they come together. Wow, what a privilege to be able to reconstruct this scene where they where they first meet i mean there's a scene the night before they hoist their beers to each other there's a scene where um i'll just condense it but this a, a, a current day sergeant in iraq is the guy that organized this event like let's bring some of the band of brothers to encourage my guys and my women who are stationed in germany so six band of brothers come over to Germany and and at the last minute he goes and hey let's invite some german soldiers and on the other end of the phone one of the band of brothers there's just silence like who does that right but but this sergeant had the courage to say why don't we invite these germans and so fritz engelberg doesn't want to come he's one who's been invited but he has the courage to come even though he doesn't want to but immediately he one of the band of brothers uh wild bill garnier says you know fritzy if i'd met you 60 years ago i would have killed you you know whips his finger across his throat and this is exactly what fritz was worried about so he gets up and gets ready to leave and then malarkey says wait a minute wait a minute and he hoists his beer and says a toast to my friend fritz engelbert the newest member of the band of brothers so these little acts of courage the 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 Iraq, the sergeant in Iraq who has the courage to invite the Germans, the German who has the courage to show up, and Don Malarkey who has the courage to, w- when things were going south for Fritz, and he could have just piled on and made some fun of him or something, he instead welcomed him to the band of brothers. What a privilege for a writer to be able to tell a story like this. For sure, and it gets to a different kind of courage, like a courage of character yeah, that really yeah. bo- that really bound yeah, them I mean, together. We, how, we don't need another story about a GI 
diving on a grenade. I mean, don't get me wrong. They, they do. I, I, I appreciate that people have made sacrifices for our country's freedom, but, but you're right. There's, there's all sorts of other ways that courage shows up. And sometimes it's, it's thinking outside the box. I mean, like, like what, what, Bill Maloney, the sergeant in Iraq, did was was a kind of a minor league episode of, of Dick Fosbury. Well, who says we have to jump over the bar the old way? Why can't we go over back? Why can't we invite Germans? <laughs> and and look what happened. I mean, you know, when people I've been on the radio for the last few weeks and, and I, I, I try to tell people that, you know, we're we're fighting a war right now in America where a lot of people don't trust each other. And at the very least, we're going to need to learn to um, like Fritz and Don, we're going to need to learn to sit down and talk to each other. We we may not like each other. We may not agree with each other, but at, at some point we've got to, we've got to respect each other enough to have some sort of a conversation. And these guys sort of paved the way for how that could happen. Yeah. It's like what you wrote in that uh, wall street journal piece that you shared with me that you end on that uh, you know, we're just hurting humans looking for hope. And there's really like looking to GIs in World War II, a former Nazi soldier in a, in a you know, e- easy company, uh, Screaming Eagle. Here they, you know, here they were able to reconcile and, and forgive each other for the orders they were put under. Exactly. I'm I'm a realist in the sense that I know that, you know, we're not going to solve America's problems by sitting down over a beer with somebody, but I'll tell you what, I'm enough of an idealist to think that, Hey, that's a hell of a start. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. I found Fritz to be a fascinating character given where he came from the pressure he essentially put his parents under because they were by no means supporters of Hitler and Fritz was the Hitler youth and indoctrinated very young. And so there there's that tension of, is the kid going to turn the parents in Yeah, as that happened countless times during uh, Hitler's rise to power and then his conversion and, and what you write about as the moral injury that he shouldered the, for his entire life. Yeah. I mean, I, I learned so much about, uh, Germany in the thirties. I, 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 all these shades of gray that I always saw in blacks and whites. I had no idea. I had no idea that these kids would, would want to be part of Hitler youth. I always just kind of imagined this was the worst thing ever, but I mean, Fritz Engelbert, he was on fire to serve Hitler. He, uh, I mean, you talk about, there's quotes in the book about that. I think that one guy talks about, you know, at this parade and he saw all these Hitler youth kids and he goes, I, it, it was he likened it to a stream and he goes i i wanted to jump in i wanted to jump in and go with the others down this stream and i i don't think that we quite understand how willingly people went particularly young people uh followed hitler and i mean yeah when you, when when your mom and dad are helping out the jewish butcher and you feel guilty because you're not turning them into the authorities, to the Nazi authorities. You understand this uh, this tension that was going on. That uh, you know, I when I was growing up, my tension with my father was nothing <laughs> of that sort. That's yeah, what it, stories do for us. They they help us understand the world in a in a new way and 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 they the 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 past sort of change can help us change for for our for our own futures and and i love that you can learn all this stuff from from the people that you get to write about 
Yeah, and uh, my my friend uh, Christina Gaddy, uh, a couple of years ago, she wrote a book called Flowers in the Gutter, and it was about uh, the Edelweiss pirates who are this uh, counterculture youth that was yeah, basically yeah, no, the antagonist. I, I read about them, yeah. Yeah, to the to the Hitler youth, and they would, you know, they were like basically like anarchists in a way, and yeah. uh, you know, they, and it was uh, it's all these stories coming out of World War II are just so incredibly layered and fascinating, and it, it's amazing to keep learning more and more about the nuance and the granularity of of uh, what kind of the culture and the hell it was, and all this stuff coming to the fore, you know, coming up on a you know, 80 years ago or you know, right. 70, 80 years. It's in, incredibly nuanced and textured. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the post-war stuff that's, that, you know, where I, I was stunned to find how many, how many people um, still, even after, even after they, they heard of the Holocaust, um, they still believed in Adolf Hitler. He was dead. Uh, the, the, the facts were right there. You know, 11 million people dead. But, you know, Fritz would get into arguments on Sunday afternoons with a family because people would stand up for Hitler and he he refused to do so. And uh, so, yeah, the, the, our, 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 our lives, our countries, our, our stories are so much more nuanced than we often uh, believe. And this this one certainly uh, taught me a lot about the grays instead of just the blacks and whites. And uh, as I love, I'll, as I usually uh, sort of take this airliner down for a landing, if you will, I always like to ask guests at the end for some sort of a recommendation of any kind. It can be any, anything uh, for the listeners out there. So so I extend that to you, Bobby. What might you recommend for uh, the listeners here as we uh, bring this conversation to a close? Well, I was going to mention a book earlier. Um, is that that's what you're talking about? Like I could recommend a book? It could be a book. I'm telling you, it could be a certain brand of coffee. It could okay. be anything. Well, I'm going to go want. with a book because the story on this is pretty interesting. So in the early 2000s here in Eugene, I'm working on American Nightingale. And I have this woman named Ferris Cassell who lives here in Eugene who um, who takes me out to coffee. And she's telling me about this story that uh, about the, this Jewish couple uh, in Germany who sends this letter. They want to come to America. Because uh, they 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 see the the shadow, uh, and and they 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 know they need to leave, and, and the rest of the family is escaping and getting out, but they haven't, and they send a letter to somebody in California, and um, anyway, this friend of mine, Ferris Cassell, who used to be a the, the book review editor uh, at at the Register Guard part timer, she just wants to tell the story, and I can remember thinking at the time, wow, this is a real long shot. I mean, this is gonna this all took place over in Europe. Uh, what are the chances that you could ever pull this off? She worked on this thing for nearly two decades, and I'm holding it in my hand. It's called The Unanswered Letter, One Holocaust Family Desperate Plea for Help by Ferris Cassell. And I'm just so proud of her. I mean, she's she worked on it for literally almost two decades. Wow. I think Laura Hildenbrand went, did seven years on Unbroken. And that's the most I've heard, but but almost 20 years on this. And it's a beautiful book. Uh, it's a painful book, obviously, in, to read in some places, but extremely well done. And and that would be my recommendation for anybody out there, particularly if you're an aspiring writer and you kind of you feel like the odds are against you. Like, could I ever pull this off? I, I would read the unanswered letter because, you know, here's somebody who just had that passion. And and I think that 
it's fair to say she also had that desperation that I talked about early on and she, she, she pulled it off. And I don't know if she has plans to write another book uh, or not, but she, she, she did what she hoped to do and it almost took two decades. So my hat's off to her. And I think she's an inspiration to us all. Oh, fantastic. And I'd, I'd extend that to you, Bob, your body of work and everything you've done in newspapers and with the books you've written and workshops that you do to cultivate the writing community is uh, is also an inspiration. So, well, thanks, uh, you know, thank- what, what, what well, fun that- being on the show with you. I, I like I said, I'm not just blowing smoke when I said I, ju- I just totally enjoyed your questions and uh, um, I could do this for another eight hours, but let's let's call it good for now. We'll call it good for now, and uh, we'll we can pick it up another time, and uh, and just keep talking shop because these okay. things are all these things are always fun. So thanks, thanks so, so much, much, Bob. Take care. Wasn't that great? I love it when people like that come to play ball. I love it when you know they love to geek out about this kind of shit, but often don't get a platform onto which to geek out. Makes for a good chat. Sets the table for more chats down the road. I love having people back on this show. You know that, baby. He's at Bob underscore Welch 23 on Twitter. BobWelch.net is where you can learn more about him. Check out the new book, etc. Saving My Enemy. Great book. Thank you to West Virginia Wesleyan College's MFA in Creative Writing and to Hippocamp 2021 for the support. Drop that CNF Pod 21 code for 50 clams off your registration fee. Tell them B.O. sent you. And like I said, I'm going to keep beating the Patreon drum because that's what's going to take this show to the next level. The more we can get those patrons up, the more we get those monthly coffers built up, it'll allow us to produce a better product over and over again. Having this show be listener-supported gives you ownership, gives you agency, helps pay writers, helps me make a better product, helps me celebrate more CNFers and build the community, you know? And it's not like you're getting nothing in exchange for a few bucks a month, so go window shop, patreon.com slash cnfpod. Had a great CNF and happy hour the other night. Lori and Suzanne showed up. Happy hour, OGers. And Damon Brown was our featured guest, and we got into some stuff. Got to be on the newsletter list. If you head over to brendanomero.com for show notes, you can sign up for that list. Anyway, we were talking about this idea of shooting for the stars and landing on the moon. That whole that whole quote of you got to aim big, and even if you fall short, you know, you're still kind of big. This is fine, but my problem with this is that if you're shooting for the stars, the moon fucking sucks. Now, your moon might be someone else's stars, and their their moon might be Massapequa. As with all things, it comes back to my sad baseball career and how shooting for the major leagues made me a damn good high school player and one that ultimately made a Division One college roster, which is... By lots of counts, the stars for a lot of people. Uh, But it didn't feel good. Landing on that moon felt like shit. And that's why, as you've heard me say a billion times, this is is, uh, the perils of a results-driven mindset. And it'll burn you out faster than a match. Came across a a great quote from uh, my uh, Headspace app. Here it is. If we are only interested in results, we defeat the purpose. The process is 
the purpose. For the win. In any case, we control what we can, what we can control. We hike our own hike, as Bob said. And that has to be the reward. It has to be because we could be writing, 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 or podcasting, 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 and soon we're 80 years old, and maybe that book we wrote didn't sell out its press run. Or your podcast didn't gain the traction you were hoping for. And you'll look back and think of uh, think about what a loser you were. And, and you will. Only if you focus on the results and not the process, the practice, the relationships, the friendships you made along the way. The rest is mushroom gravy. Tell me about that. I have to tell myself this because otherwise I'll go into some dark-ass places, man. Some dark-ass places. So in the meantime, stay cool, CNFers. Stay cool forever. Biosis. See ya! See ya!